Good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. This morning's text will be found on page 901. Our sister Courtney just did a really good job reading the text for us. Man, that was a lot. (laughs) That was a lot. It was good, though. This morning's sermon will begin by talking about the 1997 cinematic masterpiece, Titanic. In this cinematic masterpiece, we know the characters, Jack and Rose. Well, Jack helps Rose to climb up onto the railing on the front of the ship. And holding her by the waist, he asks her to close her eyes and let go. But before he does that, he asks her the magical question. Do you trust me? I'm talking to you, Trevor. In the 1992 Disney classic, Aladdin, on two separate occasions, Aladdin asked Princess Jasmine to do something daring, like get up on that magic carpet to go for a ride. And each time he asks her to take this leap of faith, he does so by asking her the the magic question. Do you trust me? This trope is one of the most common in all of cinema, from the Titanic to Aladdin, from Uh, the masterpiece, Nicolas Cage masterpiece, National Treasure, to Twilight, some variation of the do you trust me question appears over 995 times. Thank goodness for the internet telling us about such things. Over 995 times in 900 different movies. Now, in, in most cases, this do you trust me question arises when one person is trying to convince another person to do something hard or scary or really potentially fatal. And like most cliches, this trust trope is a cliche for a reason. If we're going to take a big risk, we need deep trust. We need to believe that if we take this risk, everything is going to be okay in the end. In this morning's text, we find Jesus not merely asking his disciples if they trust him, but rather telling his disciples that they must trust him if they're going to make it through the days ahead. You see, in less than 24 hours from this point in the story in John 14, their master and Lord will be betrayed, beaten, abandoned, mocked, crucified, buried. The disciples themselves will flee in fear before his death, and then they will be found in despair and confusion after his death. The disciples in the coming days will have ample reason for their hearts to be troubled, anxious, disconcerted. So what does Jesus do? Well, he is a very good pastor. He gets out ahead of it, and he tells them, Don't let your hearts be troubled. In one of his most uh, famous sketches, comedian Bob Newhart, and if you don't know who that is, ask an older person in the room. Not that old, though. Ask a still fairly young, but perhaps slightly older than you person in the room about Bob Newhart. He plays this uh, counselor who's counseling a a patient crippled with uh, irrational fears and anxieties and 
as, as Bob Newhart, the counselor, is sitting there with the patient and she's explaining her neuroses, he listens and then finally he says, listen, I have two words for you. And I want you to pay careful attention to these two words. I want you to take these two words out of the office. I want you to apply these two words to your life. Are you ready? Here they are. Stop it. Stop it. This is funny, I think, because it's so obviously bad counseling, right? Well, friends, this, Jesus is not like Bob Newhart. He's not some inept counselor in a sketch. He's a very precise heart surgeon, okay? So when he tells the disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, he's not just saying, stop it, right? He's not just saying, here's my advice to you. Things are going to get bad. Just don't let your hearts be bothered by it. That's not what he's doing. Rather, what Jesus does is he takes this whole segment, all of John 14, that's how we understand it today in John 14, this this whole segment of teaching to, to plant gospel seeds into the soil of their hearts so that when the trouble comes, their hearts will not be overwhelmed in that dark moment. So Jesus kicks off his counsel by telling the disciples that they must trust in him and they must trust in him in the same way that they trust in God. So just go back and look at verse one again. And while you're looking, can somebody bring some tissue I'm sorry, I've got an, Andrew, could you just bring that up here, brother? Thank you. Uh, over there, look at right on the window. Yes. Yeah. And are you going to come this way or that way? This way? Good. If anybody ever listens to our sermons online, they have to wonder sometimes, like what in the world is happening in that church? Okay, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This leads us to point number one, trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus. Right out of the gate, Jesus says something highly controversial. I mean, this is a heck of a thing for Jesus to say. He says, in the same way that you believe God, in the same way that you trust in God, in the same way that you rely on God when your hearts are troubled, Apply all of that in equal measure to me. Trust me like you trust God. Now there's a lot to unpack here. We're going to come back to this actually at a later point in the sermon. But for now, I just want us to see that Jesus' solution for our troubled hearts in the midst of trying circumstances is not to look upon ourselves. Jesus' solution for our hearts that, are, that could be troubled in trying circumstances is that we look on him, that we trust in him. We look away from ourselves and we look up to God to find our hope and our solutions. Do not let this pass over you lightly. Jesus does not prepare his disciples for the tough days ahead like a quarterback in a huddle. Right? All right, here's the plan. Here's the strategy, right? Grit, determination, self-reliance, discipline. No. He says, I'm going to take care of everything. That's what it means to be God. I'm the one who fixes. I'm the one who solves. What you need to do is just trust in me that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Because I will. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that 
the disciples don't have any agency or responsibility in the troubling times that are yet to come. What it means is that in the fog of war, when, when it seems like everything is going as bad as it can possibly go, when, when you're tempted to despair, when your heart is overwhelmed with anxiety and fear, we just cannot place our ultimate confidence in ourselves. But rather, we need to remember that Jesus will come and take us home. Which leads us to point number two, homeward bound. Homeward bound. There's a sense in which it's, it's not enough for Jesus to merely say, believe in me. It, it, it's not enough. Because, well, believe in you for what? Right? What are we believing you for? What, do you, what are we expecting you to do? What are we trusting in? Well, in the context of chapter 14, Jesus calls his disciples to, to trust that even though things are going to get worse before they get better, he's going to come back and take them home. Right? You can see that in verses 2 through 3. So look there. In, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, listen, the temptation for you here at this point in the sermon is to get all bogged down in trying to understand every aspect of this mansion metaphor. Right? Jesus says, my father's house is like a mansion with many rooms. And, and here you are probably thinking that in like heaven, there's going to be literal rooms. Like heaven's going to be this giant college dormitory, right? He says, I'm preparing a place for you. And you're picturing like Jesus in a hard hat up there doing like celestial construction work. Well, no, that's probably not the way that you should think about this. Just focus on the big idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. The big idea is this. God the Father has made a way through God the Son to bring all of his children home again, right? And, and the mansion is so big that there's enough room for all of his children to come home. So what the disciples need to believe in the days ahead more than anything is the promise that Jesus makes in verse 3. I will come again and take you to be with me. He says the same thing in verse 18. Just look on a little ahead in the text to verse 18. Here he says it in the negative, right? The first is, I'm going to come and get you. The second is, I will not. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, you'll notice that throughout the chapter, or maybe you notice, is that as our sister Courtney read the chapter, that Jesus kind of says it one way here and he says it another way there. So in verse 23, Jesus says, the father and I will come and make our home with you. But in verses two and three, Jesus says, I'm going to come and take you home to the father. And you might be kind of like trying to figure out how that works. Well, what, what, what are the logistics here, Jesus? Are you coming to me or am, am I going to you? Well, again, remember, don't get bogged down in that. Try to understand what the main emphasis here is. What is the main point? Jesus is obviously not contradicting himself in the space of a couple of breaths. Rather, he's saying the same thing in a different way. He's just saying that one day you are going to get to go home 
and be with the Father. Okay, so now we've seen that the disciples must believe in Jesus and we've seen what they must believe in Jesus for, namely the promise that he's going to come and take them home. Now we need to consider the basis of this belief. And this is pretty significant. On what basis can the disciples believe Jesus when he says, I'm coming back and I'm coming back to get you? Well, that's point number three, the only way, the only way. Look at verses four through six. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. And by the way, that's to the father. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am. In the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here we see Jesus tell the disciples, he says, you guys know where I'm going. I've been telling you throughout my whole ministry. And Thomas, you got to love him. He's willing to speak up and, you know, kind of look like the village idiot. He goes, "Uh, actually, we don't know where you're going. And because we don't know where you're going, we actually don't know how to get there. So can, can you help me understand that, Jesus? In verse 24, well, let's just look at verse 24 as well. Let's, let's make sure we understand what's going on here. Let's have a full-orbed vision. Verse 24, Jesus says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And this last part, the Father who sent me, is what I, I want us to see here. What Jesus is saying is, I'm about to go, disciples. I'm going back to be with the Father. And then in verse 24, we see the reason why Jesus came in the first place is because he was sent by the Father. So what Jesus is saying is, in a few days' time, I will have completed the mission that the Father sent me to accomplish, and therefore, I'll be going back to him. He sent me on a mission. Mission will be accomplished. I'm going to die on the cross, pay the price for your sins, and then I'm going to go back to God. What I, what I want us to see here is I want us to see this doctrine of reconciliation in what Jesus is, is teaching to his disciples. Remember, God the Father says, I have a mansion with many rooms, and, and the doors of my home are being thrown wide open to, to all of the nations, all the peoples of the earth. They can come home. I want you to come home more than anything else in the world, and I want you to be with me forever. Now, that sounds great, but it's not that easy. It, it, it's not that simple. You see, there is a problem. There's something that will prohibit all of God's children from coming home to live in this grand mansion with many rooms. And that problem is sin. The problem is rebellion. The problem is transgression. God says, I want you to come home, but you can't come home like that. You cannot come home in this state. You think about the, the story of the prodigal son. 
When the prodigal comes home, the father rushes out to meet him. And it's true, he probably smells like the pigs that he's been living with and eating with. He probably smells like all of the sin that he's been living in out on the road. And he probably looks disheveled. And so in that, we see this beautiful picture of God saying, come as you are. And that's true. But we must remember that before the prodigal son came home, he came to his senses and decided to leave his sin behind. The consequences of his sin were still all over him. And God says, don't worry about that. You can't clean yourself up. Just come home to me. But you must have decided to leave your sin at home or leave your sin on the road before you can come home. Well, the same thing is true today, brothers and sisters. God the Father is calling us home, but he's saying, if you're going to come, you have to make a decision to leave your sin and rebellion behind. You cannot come home as enemies. You have to come home as children. This is reconciliation. God, through Christ, is fixing our broken relationship with himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, we are told this. This is one way that the gospel is pictured. God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. He's fixed the broken relationship in Christ. How has he done that? Not counting people's sins against them. Now, this is, in one sense, uh, perhaps problematic. How can a holy and righteous God, perfect in justice, not count our sins against us? Isn't that an act of injustice itself? A man kills his wife and children and goes before the judge, and the judge says, ah, you're free to go. I love you. That's grace. You would say, no, that's not love. That's injustice. Wouldn't it be sinful to not punish that for which sin or that for which justice demands a penalty? Yes. And this is where the cross and our need for the cross comes into clear focus. On the cross, Jesus paid the price that justice demands for our sin and rebellion against the Father. We left his perfect home. We despised his love and mercy and grace. We chose the world rather than family. And that deserves sin, excuse me, that deserves wrath. But on the cross, Jesus went and took that price on himself. On the cross, Jesus, our older brother, said, no, dad, I willingly take this penalty on my own shoulders so that the rest of your children can come home in peace. Now, let's reconnect this back to the point of the passage, okay? On what basis can the disciples, and this is a relevant question for you as well, on what basis can we as God's children, all of us who belong to God, believe Jesus' promise that he will not leave us as orphans? On what basis can we believe this promise? Well, on the basis that he paid the price for our adoption. On the basis that he paid the price to reconcile us back to God. This is a price that God's son paid with his own blood. And friends, not a drop of the Savior's blood will be wasted. His blood is the guarantee that we will make it home. Jesus did not go to the cross 
suffer the wrath of the Father, and pay the price for our soul's ransom just to, in the end, leave us behind. Now, while we're talking about Jesus making a way for us to go home to God, we need to focus on something very specific. Go back to verse 6. Go back to verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I want to hang out on this in light of something that was just recently published. Ligonier Ministries, in partnership with Lifeway Research, the, the Presbyterians and the Baptists coming together. Praise God. Amen. They, uh, they designed a survey that it's called the State of Theology Survey. They administer it every year. And th- this survey is designed to take the temperature, the spiritual and doctrinal temperature of the American church. And so they ask all kinds of questions like, uh, does God need to learn and adapt to situations? Questions like, God is a perfect being and makes no mistakes. Agree or disagree? Those are the kind of questions they ask. The third statement in this year's survey, in the form of a question, reads like this. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Agree or disagree? 45% of all Christian respondents stated that they strongly agreed with this statement. Strongly agree with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. 22% of self-identifying Christian respondents said that they agreed. 11% said that they just weren't sure Maybe God does accept the worship of all religions. Who's to say? Only 6% said that they somewhat agreed, and a paltry 16% disagreed. Friends, this is revelatory. The state of Christian theology in the American church is in critical condition if we do not understand that Jesus did not merely claim to make a way back to the Father, but rather that he claimed for himself that he is the only way back to the Father. That's what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, I'm going back to the Father. And the the disciples are like, okay, how do we get there? And he says, through me. I'm the only way. Buddha won't get you there. The prophet Muhammad will not get you there. The revelations of Joseph Smith will not get you there. A Christless and crossless Christianity that is more amenable to the culture will not get you there. Your vague sense of spirituality will not get you there. Worship services in your kayak on the river on Sunday morning will not get you there. You're, uh, and Spencer, I'm not looking at you, buddy. I just know everybody's like, oh, who's the kayaker in the church? No, Spencer's very faithful. Don't worry. He's, he's here every Sunday. Your own good works will not get you there. If your good works could get you to heaven, God would not have sent his son to die on the cross. He just would have helped you to try harder 
and do better. Unfortunately, the harder you try, the worse you do. God's word says that our good works are like filthy rags. Friends, we have got to understand that God is the one who gets to set the agenda for our reconciliation. If you come to understand that there is an issue, that your relationship with the Father is broken, and that you need to fix it, and then, so that's your first thought. And then if your second thought is, I think I can figure out how to fix it, you've immediately gone off the side of the, off the cliff. There's just no, no, you, you can't figure out how to fix the relationship You're the one who broke the relationship in the first place. That's like a a serial adulterer husband going back and telling his wife, honey, this is how I'm going to rebuild trust. No, you're the one who damaged the trust. You're not the one we can trust to fix the trust. God gets to set the agenda. And he does. And he has. The terms that the Father has set for our reconciliation back to him are surprisingly simple. God says, if you want to come home, son, daughter, you can. You get to. I want you to. But there is only one door. There is only one path. There is only one way. You have to come through my son. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses of all time. Right? We all know it. Non-Christians. I think Muslims probably can recite John 3.16. It's just... It's part of the air we breathe living in America, especially in the South. But have you stopped to consider the logic of John 3.16 in relation to what we're talking about now? Just, Just listen. For God so loved the world. Got my house, big mansion, many rooms. I built it in love for you. I want you to come home. He loves us so much that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The only way to come into God's mansion is through Jesus. The only way to live and not die is through Jesus. The only way to be reconciled and to get back into the, da- into the Father's house, to go back home and be with Dad, is through Jesus. God's appointed means of reconciliation. Now this whole sermon is is about living through troubled times without having a troubled heart. So I, I want to let you know that if, if you're here this morning, if you're a visitor and, and you're not a Christian, maybe you're just sort of exploring Christianity, you're, you're trying to understand what the gospel is, I just want to speak to you just at like an existential level, like a, I want to speak to the state of your heart because I've been there. I know exactly where you are. And whether you would admit it to me right now in the middle of the service or not, or whether you would even admit it to yourself, I know that your heart is troubled. And it should be troubled. Because your relationship with the God who made you and the God who loves you and the God who wants to be your father, that relationship is fractured. And in the end, the relationship is not fractured because of what the Father did to you. Your relationship is fractured because of the way you sinned against the Father. And in the end, what that means is an eternity without Him. And I know that you know that eternity is going to be here in the blink of an eye. If you feel utterly anxious 
about death and what comes after death, you are right to feel anxious about that because you have no confidence that you will get to go home and enter into the peace of God forever. Now, having said that, I'm really glad you're here this morning because you get to hear what God has done for you in Christ so that you can come home and enter into the peace of God. And I want to I want to plead with you. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to consider these claims, to consider what God has done. And if if you just don't even know where to begin considering these kinds of things, I would just encourage you to come talk to me or really anyone in this church after service. Okay. Now, another reason why the disciples can trust that they will not be left behind as orphans is because of what Jesus says in verses 8 through 11. Look there. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This leads us to point number four, trusting the Trinity. Trusting the Trinity. Here's your main takeaway for point number four. The words of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, can be trusted because the promises of Jesus are the promises of God. The words of Jesus can be trusted because the words of Jesus are the very words of God. Jesus kind of takes that and says it even more specifically uh, and powerfully in verse 24. Go there. It's actually towards the end of the verse, second half. Jesus says, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, I told you at the beginning uh, of our sermon that we'd come back to verse 1. So this is what we're doing now. We're we're going back to verse 1, where Jesus says, you can trust me. You can believe in me. You can put your faith in me in the same way that you trust, believe, and put your faith in God the Father. If you take that statement, along with all these, my word and the Father's word are the same word, along with what Jesus says uh, here to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You take all of that together and you have two options. Option number one, Jesus was a delusional blasphemer who wrongly and falsely put himself in a co-equal position with God, with Yahweh. If so, the Jews were right to kill him. Capital punishment is the crime that's fitting, uh, excuse me, is the punishment that's fitting for that crime. Or, option number two, Jesus was telling the truth. He and the Father truly are one. That's what verses 8 through 11 are all about. Philip's like, well, help us to see the Father. And Jesus is like, hey, buddy, I'm one with the Father. Now, 
you'll notice, I hope, that here at this point, Jesus doesn't unpack and fully explain the fullness of what his oneness with the Father means, right? Not yet. He, he doesn't have to. What I want you to see here is that the disciples don't need to understand the finer points of Nicene Trinitarian theology in order to be strengthened for the trials ahead. I'm not saying that Nicene Trinitarian theology is not important. It is. We believe in the Trinity, okay? But what I'm saying is that right here at this point, all the disciples really need to know to have the confidence to move forward, to not let their hearts be troubled, is this. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus says, I won't abandon you to this lost world, I won't leave you as orphans, I'm coming back to get you, the disciples can believe him because his words are the same as the Father's words. His promise is as trustworthy as a promise from God the Father. This is significant because they were good Jews. They knew God doesn't lie. God cannot lie. This is the significance of Jesus saying, I am the truth. That's a heck of a thing to say. It's it's one thing to say, I have the truth, or I know some truth, or I'm here to tell you something true. But to say, I am the truth, that's something that only God himself can say. Friends, we know that men lie, women lie, pastors lie, missionaries lie, moms lie, dads lie, grandmas and grandpas lie. But God never lies. Human beings are prone to overpromise and underdeliver. But not God. If God says, I'm building a mansion, there are enough rooms for everybody, I'm coming back to get you, that's not going to be something that he underdelivers on. I recently got a text from a brother that said, uh, Are we still on for lunch at noon? It was 12.30. (laughs) I had forgotten about my commitment. And I had failed to keep it. Even though I had every good intention of keeping it. I actually am the one who set the lunch date. But friends, God is not like that. He will never, ever forget his commitments. He doesn't set a promise in motion and then fail to keep it. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man... That he should lie, or the son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Now, you may be wondering at this point uh, why I titled point number four, Trusting in the Trinity, when thus far all I have talked about is the Father and the Son. Well, that leads us into point number five. The spirit of truth. <clears throat> the spirit of truth. So, <clears throat> I have a calendar app on my phone. And I try to put all my, my dates and my meetings and stuff in there. And uh, they, the calendar app even has like a reminder thing in it. it you know, reminds you 30 minutes before, an hour before, 24 hours before. I also have a reminder app on my phone. It's not part of the calendar. Its sole purpose is to remind me of things, right? I even have a Luke 
Like, right? Like, like a third of Luke's job is just being like, hey, don't forget about this thing. And I'm like, oh, thank you so much. I would have definitely forgotten about that. I have all of these things available to me, all these tools, all these resources, and yet I still forget. Right? The text message. Lunch, are we still good for lunch at 12? Right? I forgot that. How? How did I forget that? On four separate occasions, I was scheduled for an interview to discuss my book on the prosperity gospel, and I forgot all four of those. <laughs> it got so bad that my co-author, he, he was like, hey, buddy, um, are you trying to like deliberately sabotage your own, <laughs> the rollout of your own book, right? Listen, I'm forgetful, and thankfully, my life is full of very patient people who very patiently absorb some of my absent-mindedness. My forgetfulness, as of right now, does not have a major impact on my life. But what would happen if I began to forget the promises of God? Well, I think that could have some serious eternal consequences. Now, the problem is, is that we are all prone to forget the promises of God. That's just part of the human sinful condition. Three separate times in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells his people, and by the way, just note, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. How prone are we to forget? God had already given an entire book worth of laws, and he's like, all right, let's just come back and rehearse this one more time. And by the way, I still want this to be its own book. You think, nah, we don't need another book for this. Yes, you do. You need a second giving of the law. Why? Because you're prone to forget. Three separate times in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells his people, take care, don't forget, because if you do, it will go bad for you. Let me just give you one example. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. The repeated refrain from God to his people throughout scripture is, for the sake of your own soul, don't forget me. Don't forget what I've done for you. Don't forget my covenant promise. This is troubling. It's troubling because God says, if you forget this, bad things are going to happen. And then the rest of scripture bears witness to God's people constantly forgetting over and over and over again. Now, this does not bode well for the disciples. All of this theology I've just kind of laid out for you. Why? Because Jesus is telling them that troubling days are ahead. And their ability to persevere in those troubling days depends on their ability to believe in his promises which they are inclined to forget. So then what hope do the disciples have? And then if that just applies to us as well, what hope do we have in our ability to remember God's promises? Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31, God says this. And this is, it's, it's so good. Just the way he starts, he's like, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. I know, I know, you're going to forget. Don't worry. I'm merciful. It's just such a ministry to my heart, you know? I mean, oh God, you're so good. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you 
or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The hope of the disciples, the hope for you and me and all of God's children is not found in our innate ability to remember God's promises. No, we are hopeless in our carnal forgetfulness. Rather, our hope is found in the fact that the God who made the promise in the first place is the God who will never forget it. The God who paid the price to keep the promise with the blood of his own son is the God who will bring this promise to mind. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? What do you think, ladies? Is that possible? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. This is so powerful. A a normal, healthy mother will never forget her nursing infant. And God says there's more of a chance of that happening than me forgetting my promises to you. But how does that help God, how does that help us to remember? Okay, so God remembers, got that, but how does that help me to remember? We'll look at verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then look at verses 25 and 27. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And listen to this. And bring to your remembrance... All that I have said to you. Wow. Friends, the Holy Spirit has many roles in the life of a Christian, but none may be more important than his work of helping us to remember all that Jesus has said to us, including his promises. In the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the God who never forgets, the God who cannot forget his promises, he comes... And lives in our hearts. Causing us to remember that which we are so prone to forget. That is our hope. Now I just want to show you three things from those two verses that we just read. Number one, the Holy Spirit is not a temporary helper. Did you see that? It says that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. Right? It's not like he's going to drop in on your heart today and he'll be with you for a couple of years and then you'll sin enough and mess things up bad enough and then he'll kind of get tired of your junk and then he'll leave. No. If he lives in your heart, he makes his home in your heart permanently and he is the seal of your eternity. Number two, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. There's a lot to unpack here in relation to Jesus says, I am the truth. And then the spirit is called the spirit of truth. But for now, I just want you to see that when you're tempted to believe a lie, Satan's treating you like Adam and Eve, just whispering in your ear, right? He's not coming back. He's not going to come get you. He's going to be just like your earthly father. He's going to abandon you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. He's going to do the same thing to you that your mom did to you. 
the Holy Spirit will be there. And he will drown out the whispers of Satan with bold, loud proclamations of the gospel truth that you once knew. When you're tempted to forget the truth, the Holy Spirit will place it fresh before your eyes again so that you remember it. When you're tempted to doubt the truth, the Holy Spirit will show it to you with fresh eyes and strengthen your faith once again. And then the third thing that I want us to see here is that the Holy Spirit does all of this from within, right? The text says that the Spirit will be with you and in you. The the with you and in you thing, that's before the Pentecost, the Spirit was with them, but after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwelt them, and now the Holy Spirit indwells all of us. So the Holy Spirit lives in us. Now, earlier when I was talking about the reminder app on my phone and the calendar app and and my Luke, um, Kate's like, "Uh, my Luke, actually, um, those are external apparati, apparatuses. Those are external to me, right? And that's part of the reason why they can fail so easily, right? The alarm can go off and I can just not hear it or I can be so busy that I don't pay attention to it. How often do you look at a text message on your phone while you're talking to somebody, register it for two seconds, go back to your conversation and never go back and respond to the text, right? The external nature of these reminders are the reasons why they can fail. But the Holy Spirit is not external. He is in us and he's not an AI powered device. He is a person. He's living He's active and his whole mission in your life, the whole reason why he lives in you is to not let you forget. He's never going to get distracted by anything else. He's there for that one purpose. He's not going to go to sleep. He's not going to get tired. He's always going to be there doing the exact same thing, reminding you of God's gospel promises. Friends, I hope you understand that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is not abstract theology. This is as practical as it gets. And listen, if if you're here and you're still like fairly young in the faith, you may not understand just how important this is. And you may not understand because you maybe haven't gotten crushed yet. You know what I'm saying? Older saints, you know what I'm saying. Like the winds and the waves of this fallen world have probably not come crashing down on you yet in such a way as to make you understand just how important this ministry of the Holy Spirit is. And if it hasn't happened, I praise God that you've been walking with him in peace and joy and and things have been good. But... I have a promise for you. It's not a threat. It's a promise. (laughs) The wind and the waves are coming. And, And when they hit you, they will hit you hard. That's a promise. But here's a an even better promise. Because of the Spirit, the wind and the waves don't win. Sin will not conquer you. Satan will not defeat you. The betrayal of your friends or family members or church members will not ultimately take you down. This broken world cannot crush you. The chance of you not making it home 
if the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, is less than zero. You will make it. Now, here's the thing. It's easy to hear what I'm saying right now and to comprehend it intellectually, to mentally assent to it. But in the moment when the wind and the waves do come crashing down on you, in that moment, this ability to trust will probably diminish. The ability to remember will decline. All of the strong faculties of faith that you feel right now sitting in this very warm, nice, comfortable room with friends and family and complete safety, all of that will feel like it contracts in the moment of your deep despair and suffering. But the Holy Spirit will be there. Even when it feels like all of your native faculties fail you to believe and to remember, God will be there. He will remind you. He will never let you forget. Now, uh, while I'm here, I want to make an application about how the Holy Spirit interacts with our troubled hearts in troubling times. And at the outset, this application may seem kind of tangential. That is, you may not see how it's immediately connected, but I think by the end you will. So just kind of Uh, Be good faith listeners and kind of stick with me as we kind of navigate through this, what I think is somewhat tricky application, all right? So we live in an age where there is a pill for everything. And and listen, in many ways, praise God for that, right? That there is a medication for so much uh, of what plagues us. But one of the things that I'm growing increasingly concerned with as a pastor, and not just me, a lot of the other ministers that I talk to are growing increasingly concerned about is the sharp increase of Christians uh, thoughtlessly taking uh, psychiatric medications. I see you're like, how did we get here from John 14? Stay with me. Stay with me. I want to make the emphasis here on thoughtlessly approaching the taking of psychiatric medications. I want to make sure that you hear me at the outset when I say this, okay? I'm not saying that Christians should never take an anti-anxiety or anti-depression medication. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. We need to be more thoughtful in the way that we approach these medications than we currently are. Does that make sense? I'm saying that before we rush to take medications that mess with our brain chemistry and that can have all kinds of knock-on consequences and side effects that we as Christians should at least stop and take an inventory of our lives, spiritual and otherwise, and ask ourselves if there may be some kind of event or pattern in our lives that could be causing us to feel the way that we feel that really has nothing to do with our brain's ability to reuptake serotonin. In in a way, this application point is very similar to what I had to say about birth control like six weeks ago, right? In that sermon, I said, I'm not taking a hardline stance against birth control. I'm not telling you that you should never take it. I am telling you that you should probably be more thoughtful than you are, you, the proverbial you, in the way that you think about taking birth control. That's, that's all I'm saying here. So let me, let me get practical. If you go into your doctor's office and you tell him as part of your routine checkups or after you have your baby or whatever that, you've been feeling depressed lately or that you've been feeling anxious. 
he will almost certainly want to prescribe you some kind of medication. And maybe you'll come up to me afterwards and you'll say, well, Sean, not my doctor. Okay, but you get the point that I'm trying to make, right? In general, doctors are quick to prescribe medication when someone says that they have feelings of depression or anxiety. Now, what I'm advocating here is for you to at least pause and ask yourself if there may not be something else going on in your life that could be causing your depression and anxiety before you start taking that medication. Does that make sense? So what kinds of things could be going on to cause you to have a troubled heart? That's the connection here back to John 14, the, the, the troubled heart. Well, there are all kinds of things that could be causing you to have a troubled heart that maybe don't have anything to do with your brain chemistry. You could have a thyroid issue. When I was a medic and I worked in the emergency room and people came in with severe depression, one of the first things we would do is check their thyroid levels because when your thyroid's messed up, you have all kinds of strange emotional responses. You could just be going through a stage in life where things are just really hard and difficult and your heart is troubled, anxious, depressed, because you should be troubled, anxious, and depressed. You, you, you lost your job. Your, your marriage is difficult. You, you're not getting any sleep. All of the, you, You've got four kids under the age of four at home, right? Like, you're like, man, my heart is troubled. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know? It could also be the case that your heart is troubled because you're not walking faithfully with Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us, do not quench the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, now, what does that mean? It means that it is possible, even though the Holy Spirit lives in us, for us to live in such a way as to quench his work, to, to reduce the efficacy of his work in our lives. We've talked about this before. You think about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life like a dimmer switch. You can live in such a way as to turn the work of the Holy Spirit all the way up in your life so that his work is bright and booming and you got to shield your eyes from it. Or you can live in such a way as to turn his presence and ministry way down so that you can barely sense his presence, so that you can barely see his work. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do it typically just by being more involved in the world than with the Lord. Do I need to elaborate? Right? Like, more time in Netflix than in God's word. More time alone than with God's people in the church. Right? That, that sort of thing. So it's possible that your heart is troubled because you're, you're not walking with the Lord. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is to help your heart not be troubled, is something that you're suppressing by choosing sin over righteousness. We live in an age where the human condition is viewed in purely mechanistic terms, where every issue of the human heart can be boiled down to brain chemistry. Now, my fear is that many Christians in our age have come to, in some way, just sort of imbibe this view. They've come to align themselves with this view, whether they realize it or not. I mean, just think about how much easier it is if you have got some really serious junk in your life that you need to work through that's causing your heart to be troubled for you to just take a pill and hope that that'll fix it. It's so much easier. Now, let me pause again and make a, just another clarification. 
if you come up to me afterwards and you say, well, you know, Pastor Sean, listen, I'm taking this medication and, and I actually really felt like I needed it and, and, and it's actually been really helpful for me, I'm not saying that there's, there are not some people who sometimes can be helped by some of these medications. What I am saying is, let that not be the first bat you swing and let it not be the biggest bat in your arsenal, right? Just stop and before you take these medications, ask yourself good, healthy questions. Do the work. Examine yourself. So let me, let me end uh, this section by making a, a comment and a question. First, the comment. Everyone's situation is different, right? So as I'm as I'm talking about something as complex as like mental health issues, right? There's so many people in this room, I don't know all of your situations. So I just want to encourage you to think through these things carefully with people that you know and love and trust, right? Talk to your pastor, talk to your elders, talk to other trusted Christian uh, Christians in your life, brothers and sisters who you think have a good understanding of the word and who know you well enough, they know your sin tendencies, your weaknesses and your strengths, Consult with them, okay, and, and, uh, and get some good guidance before moving forward. And the second thing is just a question for those who may have already chosen this route. I just want to ask you to examine yourself. Not to shame you in any way, you know, just to ask yourself, did I do the good and necessary work of examining my life or did I just kind of start taking a pill because I felt sad? And if you want to talk more about that afterwards with me, I'd love to do it. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not going to tell you to take medication. I'm not going to tell you to stop taking medication. But if you come to me and you say, Pastor, my heart is troubled. Help me think through that. I will. And I'll do it in partnership with your doctor and your counselor if you want. Okay? All right. Finally, point number six. For the glory of his name. I want us to close out this sermon by seeing that according to Jesus, the Christian faith is a boots-on-the-ground religion. Christianity is not a religion. Well, yes, it is. It specifically calls itself that. It, but if it makes you more comfortable, Christianity is a boots-on-the-ground faith. It is action-oriented. I want us to see that according to Jesus... It's not enough for us to merely have inward formation, but we must also eventually have that lead to outward action. Right? Look at verses 12 through 13, where Jesus says this specifically. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Now, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, this is one of those verses that has troubled Christians. <laughs> if you just like Google it, there, there's 50,000 articles and videos. What does it mean when Jesus says that we will do greater works than him? What could we possibly do that is qualitatively better than what Jesus has done? Jesus, Jesus has done the greatest work of all. He reconciled all of lost and sinful humanity 
back to the Father. We can't do anything better than that. We can't do anything greater than that. So what Jesus has to mean here is he has to mean that we will carry on his work in its extent. Right? We will carry on his work in its quantity. So I think you can see this pretty clearly in 2 Corinthians. So just turn there with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verses 18 through 20. So Paul has just been talking about the gospel of reconciliation all the way from verse 11. And finally at verse 18, he says all of this, all this gospel of reconciliation stuff is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, let me explain, let me elaborate. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Now, what is the appeal? Here it is. Paul tells you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The greater works that we do is the ministry of reconciliation. It is carrying out the work of being an ambassador of Christ. What he did was once and for all accomplished. It's finished. He's done. You can't add to that. So what do we do? We go out and carry it to the nations. We can't replicate his dying on the cross, but we can go out and tell people about his dying on the cross and call on them to believe in what his death on the cross accomplished. Now, it it should go without saying that this work will not be easy. But this too should not trouble our hearts. These greater works that Jesus is calling us to accomplish, he also says, I will accomplish them through you. And that's the final promise of Jesus in this week's text. Look at verse 14 again. Just go back to John 10, 14. Excuse me, John 14, 14. Jesus says, if you ask me anything, that's in relation to this mission, in my name, I will do it. The final reason, friends, why we don't have to let our hearts be troubled is that as we try to carry out the work that God has called us to, he will empower us to do the work. He will give us every good thing we need. So in closing, I just want us to see how all of the Christian life is grace. We would not have turned to Christ were it not for grace. We would not have trusted in Christ were it not for grace. We would not make it home to the heavenly mansion, were it not for grace. We would not be able to carry on the mission to do the great works, were it not for grace. Jesus says, if you feel like you need something in order to finish this, just ask me. I have all the resources, and I have all the desire. I have all the time and attention. It's all available for you. All you have to do is ask. And friends, even your ability to ask is a work of grace.
I think uh, the only real way to end the sermon is to just recognize the grace of God in, in all of the members of the Trinity. That's one of the things that just sticks out for me in the text. I don't even have anything written here on my manuscript about this. But it just seems that we see God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit working together to bring us home. And so we should praise them all. All praise be to God the Father. All praise be to God the Son. And all praise be to God the Spirit. Amen? All right.